The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to Utah Symphony's Ghostlight Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Jeff Counts, and I'm joined today by renowned pianist Kevin Cole. Welcome, Kevin. Nice to be with you, Jeff. It's wonderful to have you. And when I say pianist, it's leaving out about 30 other things that you're known for. You're a real renaissance man in the music world. But it's your piano life that we're talking about today because you'll be joining the Utah Symphony on an upcoming concert of George Gershwin's music. And I wanted to talk to you about George in particular because you've become recognized as a champion of his music. And I'm curious how you came by this identity. What brought you to this place professionally? Well, it was just a happy accident that when I was seven years old, and when you're seven years old, you're normally in second grade, I had witnessed a commercial on television promoting a late night film called Rhapsody in Blue by Warner Brothers. And it was to be the biopic of the life of George Gershwin with Robert Alda, Alan Alda's daddy, playing George Gershwin. Mm -hmm. And at age seven, I'd been playing the piano almost three years and just intrigued me. Uh, But it was going to be shown on a Tuesday night. And that's a school night. Uh, It was during the school year. And normally you're in bed by 7 or 7.30 and it's an 11.30 movie. (laughs) So I remember a few days before asking my parents if I could stay up and watch that. Uh, If I came home from school, did my homework and went right to bed, would they wake me up at 11.30 to see this movie? And they said yes. So at the time, I didn't realize that the script of the movie was pure Hollywood. It really wasn't his life. They Mm -hmm. made up a all kinds of romances and things that just weren't true to form. But the performances by Oscar Levant, Al Jolson, the original cast of Porgy and Best, etc., were all true performers that Gershwin knew. And so the music was really spectacular and hit me rather hard. I had heard about George Gershwin and Rhapsody in Blue, but I didn't know anything. And so by the weekend, Uh, which was the time where our mom would take my brothers and I to the library to get our books for the week. I asked the librarian if there were any books on George Gershwin. And she came back with one called The Gershwin Years, co-authored by Lawrence Stewart and Edward Jablonski. And she said, did you know that Ed Jablonski is from Bay City, Michigan, which is my hometown? Right. And so that just kind of blew my mind thinking, wow, somebody from Bay City wrote a book about Gershwin. I got to meet this guy sometime. Well, I looked at the pictures, read a few captions. I really I couldn't uh, read the biography at that time, but I made a vow that at some point I'm going to see uh, Ed Jablonski and just let him know there's somebody else in Bay City who loves the music of Gershwin. So uh, let's fast forward eight years later. When I was 15, I made my first trip to New York. I had an audition for Tanglewood Music Festival. But immediately upon getting to the hotel, I pulled out the Manhattan phone book and looked up Jablonski E. And there was like a page and a half. I mean, there were a lot of Jablonskis (laughs) and a lot of them with the E as the first initial. But I literally just put my finger on one and called. And it was Ed Jablonski. And and my first words to him were, Hi, my name is Kevin Cole. I'm from Bay City, Michigan. I play the piano and I love Gershwin too. And after a slight chuckle on the phone, he and his wife invited me over the next night for supper. And after supper, I did notice he had a little spinet piano in his living room. And he said, would you like to play? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. So I played a little medley of Gershwin tunes that I had made up. 
and probably the first and second prelude. And when I finished playing for him, now mind you, I was 15 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, he said a statement that changed my life. He said, has anyone ever told you when you play Gershwin, you sound like Gershwin? And I said, no. And he asked me if I'd ever heard Gershwin play. And I'm thinking to myself, well, how old does he think I am? But I had never heard Gershwin play. And right. so he proceeded to bring out reel-to-reel -reel tape recordings of Gershwin playing and talking. So for the very first time, I got to hear him play and speak. And Ed said, don't you think you sound like that? So from that humble meeting, I would spend part of my summers uh, with the Jablonski family, and he would have these get-togethers. And one in particular was uh, when I was 17, and he got uh, Gershwin's sister, Frankie, her husband, Leopold Godofsky II, son of the famous pianist Leopold Godofsky, and the inner circle of Gershwin's friends, uh, Kay Swift, Mabel Schirmer, Emily Paley. And these are people that all knew George. And the first thing he did was play a recording of the first movement of Gershwin's Concerto and F that I had played, um, at Interlochen, mm -hmm. where I went to school with an orchestra, and one by one they they were leaving the room crying. So I kept thinking, well, is it that bad? You know, <laughs> they're, not, they're not liking this one. But when they, when they got came back into the room and they finished listening, they just said, "We just never thought we'd hear the piano sound like George. This is just uncanny." So then I played for them live. And uh, they just made these remarks that just made me feel like I was in an uh, episode of Twilight Zone because what do you do with this uh, when the people that that knew George uh, and heard him, of course, and tell you this, and I have no way of knowing. Uh, I'd never heard him. It's just the way I played his music, right. just the way it spoke to me. So that's kind of how it, how it started. You know, speaking of incredible feedback you got when you were young. I read about how Irving Berlin heard you play and was incredibly impressed and had something very memorable to say to you. I mean, can you well, just, can yeah. you describe how that impacted your career? I mean, obviously it sent you on this path, but. <laughs> well, it was just one of many. Uh, I had the good fortune of being able to read the roadmaps of music very well. You know how you go on a trip and some people are good at reading roadmaps mm -hmm. and others aren't. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, I can look at a piece of music and kind of see behind the notes and get real close to how the songwriter or composer would, themselves would like to hear these pieces played. Mm -hmm. So especially in the American Songbook, like in Irving Berlin and Harold Arlen and Burton Lane and Hugh Martin, Sondheim, and all these people that I had the good fortune to meet uh, when they were living and, you know, there's just very few left, if any. Uh, and so Jablonski, of course, being the biographer, the definitive biographer on Gershwin and Berlin and many of these people, they were his friends and they trusted him. And it was n nothing for him to take me over to meet Yip Harburg or Harold Ireland and have me sit down and play. And there are two, two stories related to Irving Berlin uh, that I enjoy and only in recent years have I told. And one was um, when uh, Irving Berlin called Ed Jablonski because uh, he'd hear from him at least once a week, if not twice a week. And I knew uh, that people called Ed. It was not unusual for him to get calls from famous songwriters or composers or celebrities because, you know, they needed a piece of Gershwin that he might have or some kind of whatever. He was a resource. Right. Yeah. But on this particular day, when I'm visiting with Ed, 
uh, and staying there, um, the phone rang. The phone was in the kitchen in the apartment uh, in New York, and had a, he had a long cord, and I didn't know who he was talking to, and I was at the piano just kind of noodling around. And then all of a sudden, Ed got the phone stretched on the cord all the way to the living room. He says, hey, I got a friend here. Uh, would you, why don't you play a medley of Berlin? Uh, he'd love to hear it. And I thought, okay, because a lot of times he'd be talking to fans in Australia mm -hmm. or whatever. And mm -hmm. so this was nothing out of the ordinary for me. So I just whipped up some medley of about four or five Berlin tunes, strung them all together and played them on Ed's little spinet. And when I got done, Ed says, come over here. Someone would like to say hello to you. And as I'm getting closer to Ed, he's ready to hand the phone over to me. He says, it's Irving Berlin. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and of course, Ed, listened in because yeah. he wanted to hear what berlin had to say sure and uh berlin the first thing out of his mouth was he said christ kid if i could have played piano like that i wouldn't have become a songwriter <laughs> and that's quite a quote coming from the master i would say so yeah and he was at that time i want to say he was 93 or 94 but talk about somebody who was uh quick-witted it sounded like this young guy on the phone, just eager and energetic. But one of the stories he told me, because he asked me some things about what I was doing, la, la, la. And, and uh, he said to me, well, I got to tell you a story about something. And he said, one day, he said, well, this would have been back probably in the late 30s, early 40s. But he said, I was out of friends. And uh, he said, I, Irving, I got to put on this recording. And uh, it's, you know... Um, you're going to really enjoy it. He, and he says, it's Benny Goodman. That's great. Mm -hmm. So he puts it on and Irving's listening to it. And, you know, and when he gets done, his friend is like looking at him, like there's not getting a reaction. And he says, well, you know what that is, don't you? And Irving Berlin said, did I write it? He goes, well, yeah, it's your, it's your song, Blue Skies. Benny Goodman did a recording of your song, Blue Skies. So, Irving Berlin says a couple of weeks later, he's on walking down the street in Manhattan and he bumps into Benny Goodman. As happened in those days. Of course. <laughs> Benny, Benny, I just, I just heard your recording of, of my song, Blue Skies. It was so good. I didn't recognize it. <laughs> so then he said, Kevin, sometimes guys like you take songs that guys like us write and make them sound even better. So, you know, it's just that sort of thing. The other story relates to Harold Arlen. And for those who, the name isn't familiar, um, he's the one who wrote the music to The Wizard of Oz. Right. And A Star is Born. And just, I mean, he's got more hit songs and more people don't know his name. Uh, but anyway, uh, he was a terrific uh, guy and quite a cheerleader for me. And uh, the first time Ed took me over to meet Harold Arlen and play for him, um, I, you know, put together, I think I played a Gershwin medley, then I put together an Arlen medley. I just, you know, just playing for him. And while I was playing, the phone rang and, you know, the, uh, Harold Arlen and Ed were sitting, you know, behind me in this little den there. And I just heard mumble, mumble, mumble and, uh, and a hang up. And I didn't think anything more of it. So after our afternoon was done and Jablonski and I walking back to Ed's apartment, um, Ed says to me, do you know who called while you were playing for Harold? And I said, no. He says, well, it was Irving Berlin. I said, what? He goes, yeah. He says, you know what he said? <laughs> so this is what Harold said. He picked up the phone and said, can't talk now. Listening to someone who's good. And then he hung up on Irving <laughs> Berlin. <laughs> so Ed says, you can tell your grandkids that Harold Ireland hung up on Irving Berlin to listen to you. 
you can't make that kind of no. stuff up. It sounds like out of a movie script, but but I was very fortunate because of Ed Jablonski um, that he just took me around and said, you got to hear this kid. And that's how I kind of became known from the ages of 15 to about 22, 23. Whenever I was in New York, he said, hey, you want to go, you got to meet Burton Lane or you got to meet so-and-so. And I would, and I'd play for them. And, and they just, uh, yeah, they just kind of knocked them out. But for me, I was so fortunate in that I was, my playing for them was my way of saying thank you uh, for all their great music, because when do you get the opportunity to thank these songwriters for what they gave us? And uh, this this music has had such an impact, these songs, on all kinds of occasions in one's life. And so it was just uh, a blessing for me. And, and it inspired me. I didn't go to college right out of Interlochen, even mm-hmm. though I was slated to. I started freelancing. And so my college became meeting these people and uh, them giving me a little boost by what they said and their enthusiasm for what I did. I'm sure that the gratitude you feel towards these songwriters is implicit in every note you play. And I bet that has a lot to do with how they react to you. And it also occurs to me that you could probably do an entire chapter of your memoirs just based on the phone interactions you've had with Irving Berlin. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we had Patty Austin on the show recently, and she she was talking to me about the reaction she gets to the Great American Songbook whenever she takes it abroad. And I'm curious, in the same vein, how you describe the reaction to Gershwin's music in Europe and elsewhere in the world that you've taken to perform it. I mean, do non-Americans see this as a really important aspect of our cultural oh, identity? Yeah. yeah, they do. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, many times uh, afterwards, if I'm out in the lobby to meet and greet or sign programs or CDs, uh, people will say to me, uh, this is the best part of America, what you just did today. This this is what America truly is. Forget all the politics. Forget- and it's very shocking because I mm. never think of myself representing an entire nation right, right. By, by my music. Yeah. But they they do. They they recognize that Gershwin speaks universally. Uh, it's not just about America. It's about anyone who has a heartbeat mm-hmm. uh, c- can take this music uh, in and it, it affects them. And it still has that same vitality energy drive and heart that it did when these notes first hit the air yeah so yes i definitely uh, no matter where i play it uh that music says america but it also says this is this is some of the best that america has ever given <laughs> to the world sure, sure and i'm fortunate that gershwin was a pianist composer like a rachmaninoff or a list because that means the piano parts are a lot more juicy and just the thought behind it is uh and the harmonic structure is just different when it's a pianist composer for me. Speaking about him as a pianist and the music he wrote for piano, as we record, it's Rhapsody in Blue that you'll be playing with Utah Symphony. This music has a long history of being included in pops programs in the United States, but I think it belongs on subscription masterworks programs. I think that's the kind of music it is. Yeah, I agree. And in fact, um, I have, if, if my track record is anything, I have played it more, uh, Gershwin's works more in subscription concerts than mm-hmm. I have in pops. Yeah. It's only been in the last six, seven, eight years, especially when I was working with Marvin Hamlish for eight years doing Gershwin concerts with right. him conducting all over, right. that I did more pops than uh, subscription. But it's always been a battle because that's, it's, they kind of want to put it 
just in pops and nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that no it is popular but it's not the only place, as you said, that it should be played. You know, the concert that you'll be doing with us, it's an outdoor concert. It's a summer venue. Yeah. There'll be all different kinds of people in the audience. And I'm thrilled that they're going to get to hear you play this magnificent work. But I was curious what you thought of sort of the state of that piece and its legacy today and kind of where it fits now. Well, I'm playing the Rhapsody. I'm also playing the Variations right. on I Got Rhythm, exactly. which is quite an out there piece for Gershwin. It's sure, very, sure. It's a, it's a Gershwin of the 30s as compares to the Rhapsody being a Gershwin of the 20s. Mm-hmm. But here's the deal. I, uh, it's The Rhapsody and the Concerto in F are still the two most performed piano orchestra pieces on the planet in any given year. Mm-hmm. Nothing surpasses it. I think maybe after that would come like the Rachmaninoff second, right. the Grieg piano concerto and right. the Tchaikovsky number one. Those would be kind of up there. But as far as American works for piano and orchestra, nothing beats mm. Rhapsody in Blue and Concerto in F. So you wonder, you say, well, there have been other pieces written since then. I mean, we're talking 1924, 1925. Right. Has it one American com- concerto or work, you know, equaled it or surpassed it or comes close? Not even comes close. And I've tried, I've looked at them and said, yeah. maybe I should learn this one. Maybe I should learn that one. And I'm like, what, to get one call every three years to play it? I said, no. So what I think is uh, is interesting because, as you know, thousands of pianists know how to play the Rhapsody in Blue, and there's probably at least a good 300 out there that get a lot of work playing it around the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so why hire me to do it when there's so many? It's just get, get out the Rolodex and just pick one. And I, I think because for some reason, I'm an interesting hybrid. I mean, I studied classical, but I always had the love of American popular song and Broadway and Hollywood and all of that and jazz. And I didn't want to choose one or the other at a time when you were supposed to. So once I learned Gershwin's story, it was the same with him. They were saying, oh, George, stick to your concert works. Give up those shrite songs and musicals you'll really be something and then the other people would say oh don't don't do all that highbrow stuff you write such great songs and musicals that's what we need and he thought well why do i have to choose and because he wouldn't make a choice to pick one over the other a lot of critics people had difficulty with that they Mm -hmm. don't want you to do a lot of things well uh it's, it's unnerving they can't believe you can do all of that it's not fair it's something i don't know what it is uh, it makes them uncomfortable. Yeah. But what I have to say with the Rhapsody in particular, um, by now, so many people have heard the version they like when they come to a concert where I'm playing it, from a recording, from another live performance, whatever the source in their head, they have the Rhapsody that they expect to hear. Sure. So when they sit down and I start playing and it, it, it all of a sudden there's a little more sparks flying in the uh, the concert hall. Afterwards, people say, I have every recording of that piece. I know that piece forward and backward, but I have never heard it played like that. And I, it's a great compliment. And they go, what do you do that's so different? How did you do that? And I said, well, one conductor once said, uh, this isn't your grandma's Rhapsody in Blue. He said, but actually, it probably is or great grandmas, right. because when George, and when it first came out, there was a vitality and an energy to it that has kind of gotten lost over time. People tend to take this piece and feel 
they can have free reign with it and that you know the structure is so loosey-goosey oh i can do this i can do that and make it mine i'm gonna get my imprint on the rhapsody in mm-hmm. blue and i've never worried about my imprint on anything it's it's my imprint because i'm the one playing it right people may say i play like george gershwin or sound like george gershwin but no one plays exactly like george gershwin or rachmaninoff or these people the only thing i feel i can do is try to capture the energy that these pianists and composers had when they if they performed the piece like a gershwin i try to capture that uh that same intention the same drive uh and 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 that's my job not to imitate or sound right but but get a vitality and an immediacy to these notes and these passages and this music so it sounds like you know like the ink is still wet on the page that's my job and so i think that's the only thing I can figure out that makes makes my playing and my attitude towards it different is uh, let the music speak for itself. You know, when this piece, uh, Rhapsody in Blue, first came out, it was the piano was supposed to provide the classical sound and the jazz band, the jazz sound. Right. But once, once it was symphonically arranged after George's death in 1942, it's as if this big cow walked into the room and said, I'm the Rhapsody in Blue, you know, and, and it's got weighed down with these, you know, lush strings and all this, so that all of a sudden the orchestra became the classical and the pianists have to provide the jazz. Mm-hmm. And so the balance got all out of whack. So I think what I'm trying to do is just give both the orchestra and the piano a chance to be formal and informal, jazzy and classical. So that we, you know, we're we're both tossing that ball back and forth rather than one or the other. I think it's interesting this notion of playing what's written and using the energy that the composer put on the page to inform your performance. I remember when I was studying French horn, and my teacher would say to me, "Just play it as it lays. It's already good enough. It's already <laughs> yeah. good. You've got to be prepared and you've got to be genuine, but you don't have to be cute." It's already yeah, good. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a question that we asked Lisa Roman when she was on the show a few weeks ago. Oh, I love Lisa. We, we all do. She's a big oh, hit we here. Per- well, we haven't shared a concert in quite a while, but yeah. whenever we have, we just have the best. We just lap our heads off and then just tear it up on stage. She's terrific. We all think so, too, here in Salt Lake. <laughs> but I, I want to ask you the same question, and it's I want to get your opinion on what you think the current state of music theater is. Does it, as an art form, still clearly reflect the social priorities of our moment here in 2017 i mean has anything been lost in this sort of quick hit culture we're in right now not really um, obviously if you see um in recent years musicals like fun home and next to normal they are tackling issues mental health and relationships mm-hmm. and families and mm-hmm. um, so they're they're like in your face the and, and, and current as current as what hair did when it first came out yeah. it was so much of the moment and, and just like flash photography bam it froze a moment for us to look at so I, I those musicals are out there what i can tell you is i just saw last week uh the new musical bandstand mm-hmm. uh which absolutely hands down is one of the best things i've ever seen on broadway and i've been going there since i was 15 years old the quality of that show the the dancing but also the book and music the lyrics everything it takes place after world war ii and these musicians uh you know who were in the war 
uh, and how they're dealing with, you know, the stress and everything coming back and trying to acclimate back into the world. But it does it in such a way that it, it has hard entertainment. So it, it was a throwback in some ways, but yet the way musically this, the, these songs and uh, music was written, it had a reflection of the late 40s big band but it still had a contemporary edge. They, they walked that line, so, which was very interesting. So they weren't trying to sound period, like an old musical from the 40s. Right. But yet, but, you know, but it looked that way. And the dialogue was, you know, kind of that way. Right. But when it came to the music, they, they kind of did what Gershwin did, kind of make a blend uh, of being contemporary in the jazz vein, but still have echoes uh, linked to the past. So seeing something like that of that level, and I also saw Come From Away, from a to- which is a totally different show than Bandstand because it's it's of now. But uh, musically speaking, I have to say there's some really high quality writing going on. Um, they're not writing songs uh, as their score per se, right? Because uh, you know in the old days you'd have what 17 numbers in a show and at right. least 12 of them were songs that, that could be lifted and sung by anybody and covered on a recording right but so they do there's a few but most part they're just they're writing you know operetta in the yeah. sense that it's sure. just running dialogue it's recitatives it's all of that and the melody is is not as important as the rhythm and, mm-hmm. and the words mm-hmm. so they they've let rap and hip-hop and things influence them and there's nothing wrong with that because it's current it's just amalgamated it's just in a little different way than what you would consider a traditional musical but i i say it's very much alive in fact there are more musicals on broadway now than straight plays right. and it wasn't that long ago that it was the opposite yeah so uh it's very much alive there's some young uh, songwriting teams out there or musical writing teams um but i do like songs and I think Bandstand helped me in that respect is that even though they had the ones that were kind of running dialogue style songs, they had some that were just songs sure. that, that, that moved the story along. But yet you heard it. It had a, an, a beginning, a bridge and an end. <laughs> and it was no mistake in it. Yeah. Uh, I just didn't run on and on. So, uh, no, I'm I'm encouraged. In fact, I'm writing shows myself. Right. I, I know that. Yeah. Yeah, that's the next step. I, I have to, I'm hanging up my my musical director baton as far as doing other people's shows. In fact, yeah. my last show will be this fall. I'm doing in my hometown. I'm doing nice work if you can get it. The new Gershwin musical. Right. And because uh, my hometown uh, theater, Bay City Players, is celebrating its 100th season, if you can imagine. That's for incredible. A com- for a community theater. So I said. I want to do the first musical of the hundred season and I want to do um, the Gershwin show. Nice where if you can get it. Yeah. And so I'll be at a Steinway with a little 10 piece jazz band. And that will be my swan song for book musicals that I haven't written. Your podium the show, swan song. Yeah. yeah. The next show <laughs> I do will be something I've written because I have to give myself a kick in the pants to make that happen because it's time what i've learned from all these great songwriters and composers it's time to apply it and people have heard individual songs or a song or two from from one of my musicals but they've never really seen a full fleshed out one and i'm ready i think it's interesting that that 
I asked that question because the one thing that didn't occur to me when I asked it is that to a certain extent, the state of the art form is in your hands. You're going to be adding to it here very, very soon. And I'm really anxious to hear. I'm sure that in some respects, some of my writing will sound very old fashioned, but to quote Irving Berlin, uh, when he he had his biggest success in musicals with Annie Get Your Gun when he was 57, almost 58 years mm-hmm, old, mm-hmm. Uh, which is about the age I am right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, when that happened, you know, one of the critics said to him, well, you know, your, your show is you know, it's kind of, it's good, but it's kind of old fashioned. And his reply, yeah, an old fashioned hit. <laughs> well, I see no problem with music, film, any art form choosing an anachronistic sort of palette because like you said about bandstand, it's it's it it might sound like it's tradition bound, but it's bringing a message this whole idea of coming home from war and that's oh, yeah. very current. That is today, yeah. that is tomorrow, that's never not going yeah. to be fresh in terms of a message. So don't listen to him, Kevin. Do what you feel. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Before I let you go, I wanted to ask you sort of a silly question. It's one we ask sure. all of our guests, and it's because of our name. I'm curious, Kevin Cole, if you've ever seen a ghost, and if so, give us details, please. Well, I really can't say I've seen a ghost, mm-hmm. but I can tell you I had a ghost-like experience, and it ties into Gershwin. Let's and hear I think it. it's kind of yeah. Well, the very first time I played, as I had mentioned earlier, for the Gershwin girls and his sister and people that knew him in Ed Jablonski's apartment on this little Baldwin spinet piano. Um, after I got done playing and we're all sitting there talking, someone suggested that Kay Swift, who was Gershwin's paramour, but also a composer in her own right, songwriter, pianist, she was the one when he was working at Porgy and Bess, she was, you know, doing the dictation, you know, writing down the, the notes, like being a music secretary. So they were very, very close. Uh, and she was just a brilliant musician. Okay. And a, a terrific pianist. Mm. So anyway, at some point during this lovely afternoon, and again, I would think I was all of 17 at the time, uh, someone suggested that Kay and Swift and I do four hands at one piano because she used to play two pianos just for fun with George. Um, so she said, well, I'm game, you know, if Kevin is. And I said, sure. So we both sat down at the bench. She was uh, tackling the lower part of the keyboard, uh, would be more the accompaniment. And I, the upper, which means I would be playing more of the melody. And we're just going to improv. And we decided on the tune, Dear Little Girl, uh, a, ger- a beautiful little Gershwin tune. And so we're playing along and it's pretty straightforward. We're doing the verse. She's doing the nice accompaniment on the bottom. I'm playing the melody line. And then we do one time through the refrain. And then on the repeat of the refrain, we kind of both start, you know, doing a little more, adding a little more stuff, a little more improv. And at one point during that second refrain, we both played a rhythm exactly the same way. And it was, it would not be a typical rhythm. There was nothing rehearsed. Mm -hmm. There was no way to communicate this ahead of time. We just all of a sudden played it and felt it the same way. And as we did that, while we're still playing, we both turned our heads and looked at each other. And I know what, what she was thinking and I was thinking at the same time was, have we done this before? Wow. So it was kind of that, again, like a spooky out-of-body thing because it just was so spontaneous. Um, and it wasn't something we talked about, but people laughed when they heard it. 
everyone in the room just chuckled because they huh. recognized we were both doing it at the same time, fully realizing we had never played together. So I, I guess if there was a ghost like oh, wow. experience, it would have been that. I just felt like, you know, I never feel like, you know, George Gershwin isn't in my body. I'm not right. like that kind of thing. But I have a feeling just for a second there, uh, our minds just kind of clicked and there was this feeling of, uh, of a presence or, or just that uh, we're all on the same wavelength and George is on her shoulder kind of feel. It was, so that's as close, close as I can get to a ghost story. I think it's a good one. It's, it's almost like seeing yourself in that picture in the bar in the movie The Shining. You know, like you've, you've definitely yeah. been here before, many years before. I think that's, I well, think that's it's a, funny. When I, when I think about that happening now and as I, when I tell it and whatnot, I almost see myself watching the two of us play. I mean, it's just, even when it happened, I felt a little out of my skin a little mm -hmm. because, uh, first of all, to be playing with somebody, you know, who was so close to Gershwin right. uh, is, is enough in itself. But that we were in sync like that. Uh, and there's no way. How does a you know kid from Bay City, Michigan, same thing, Ed Jablonski, we talked about how does he from Bay City, Michigan, how does he become yeah. the definitive Gershwin biographer and, and all these songwriters? And how do I play this music like this? So Ed would say, there must be something in the water. I said, well, I don't know. Because we weren't born in Brooklyn. We weren't, you know, we weren't there to have that experience and to live that life. But it just tells you the power of music yeah. uh, to transcend environment, uh, to transcend uh, anything and, and how it communicates near or far and resonates. And for some reason... Uh, George and his pals there certainly have, uh, well, paved the way for my journey. Well, I, for one, hope that there is something in the water in Bay City because Michigan water's in the news for all the wrong reasons lately. And I think it would be, <laughs> I think it would be yeah. great if there were a font of sort of Gershwin magic happening in Bay City. And I know yeah. that the audiences here are really excited to hear you do it. And I'm thrilled that you were able to give us the time today. And thanks for telling us all those amazing stories. It's been really oh, fun. Well, my pleasure. And this will be my debut uh, with the Utah Symphony, my right. debut in Utah. So I'm very excited for this. Well, Kevin Cole, thank you so much for being a guest today on the Ghost Light Podcast. You're welcome, sir. The Ghost Light Podcast is produced and edited by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.